Okay, so this conversation this week is a must listen and it's one that's going to touch your soul. My guest is the extraordinary Henry Fraser, mouth artist and author and motivational speaker. I knew a little bit about Henry's story before I started the podcast, but my goodness, hearing him speak about the terrible accident that paralysed him from the neck down, aged just 17, sent me off quite a few times in this recording. But it's when you hear him speak about the transformation he has gone through, thanks to this adversity, this life-altering experience, how he's been able to take that and move it into strength and gratitude. I mean, it was just phenomenal. Henry is just one of life's good people. Do you know what I mean? It's an old soul on young shoulders and a shining example on perspective, everyone, on just perspective, being able to think about gratitude, the bigger picture, happiness coming out of our heads and into the light, a true triumph over tragedy. And it's one of those absolute listens that 100% you're going to take life lessons from. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Hi, I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to my podcast Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28 with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co. I've learned so much about taking risks, running a business, and some extraordinary life lessons along the way, and I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard, and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoyed this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's Conversation of Inspiration. Hi, Henry. It's such a huge pleasure to be speaking with you today. And thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's great to talk to you. You're a phenomenal mouth artist, a Sunday Times bestselling author and a motivational speaker. And yours is a story of serious inner strength, courage, transformation. And even, am I right in saying that your story has been turned into a West End musical? Yes. Yeah, so it's currently on stage at the West End. It starts in September and it's still very surreal and odd, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> what did you think the first time you saw it? I said it to those people and I've kind of put it out there on social media and stuff. I say it was the best night of my life seeing it for the first time. Um, it was just an incredible piece of well theatre I'm not a theatre goer really at all or especially musicals so when I went and I saw it and saw what they'd done with the story just experienced it in that moment it was spectacular. Did you know anything about the rehearsals or did you sort of know what was coming? I tried to stay out of it as much as I possibly could I sat down with them for an interview at the start you know talk with the writers 
for ages just going over things. They sat down individually with my brothers, my parents, and a couple of my mates to kind of really just pad out that story and find as many different angles as possible. And then during rehearsal time, they'd sent me some recordings of the live read-throughs and and the whole pieces together. They invited me to rehearsals, but I didn't watch any of it. I'd heard the songs, but all the other side of it, I just didn't want to be part of it. And for two reasons. One, I knew that if they had kind of sent it to me and I didn't like it or wasn't sure about something, I'd want to get involved and have my suggestions. But they're the professionals. They know way more about that industry than I ever will in my life. I just wanted to leave it to them and let them put their own creative spin on it. But also I wanted to turn up to the theatre in that moment on that day for the first time and just enjoy it for what it was and mm. not go in thinking about anything. I knew a couple of changes they'd made, but it wasn't anything too significant or going to adjust the storyline. And when I went there and saw it, it was just, yeah, wow, amazing. What a moment. What a moment that must have been. I'm wondering for those who don't know your story, if you might just start by going back to the moment when you were 17 and that everything changed for you. Yes, yeah, so I was just on holiday with a group of uh, my mates from school. It was after our AS exams. We decided to go to Portugal, went to the Algarve in the south and did the you know the usual lads holiday thing. We had a place to stay. We'd spend nights out late, get up you know in the afternoon, go to the beach, enjoy the sun, enjoy the sea, then go back to the villa, get showered and think about the heading out for the night out. And you know, we did that the first few days of the holiday and on the fifth day of a holiday, slightly different part of the beach that day, I ran into the sea to cool off from where I dived in. I just went headfirst into a sandbank, basically, and opened my eyes expecting to get up and go to my mates back on the beach and think about a night out. But I opened my eyes still in the water, just staring through this kind of crystal clear sea at my arms there just dangling in front of me just totally unable to move in, in that moment. And it was the most scared I've ever been. It will be the most scared I ever will be in my life. I was just swearing, panicking, just not knowing what to do. And in that moment, I did think, you know, that was it. Luckily, I saw out the corner of my eye, my mate's legs kind of walking towards me. And he asked if I was okay. I managed to just about get half my mouth out of the water. And I just said no. And he and another mate dragged me onto the beach. I was then airlifted to hospital in Lisbon, where I spent two and a half, three weeks, I should know, uh, <laughs> uh, where I had all these illnesses, I had pneumonia, MRSA, Uh It turns out I dislocated my fourth vertebrae. So when that slid out of the place, it dragged the spinal cord with it, which severely crushed all the nerves, which left me... Well, at that moment, I wasn't able to move a single thing. I had one surgery, it was unsuccessful. The second surgery, they had to basically screw and wire my vertebrae back into place. All the kind of metal work still on my neck, which makes for quite a cool x-ray, to be honest. And then, yeah, then it was flown back to England where I spent six months in hospital here and then out living my life and, you know, living a new life. My son is just gone to university so 18 19 and I know that sort of stage of life as in I have that man with me at the moment and it is an incredible moment where you obviously are thinking everything is in front of you you know you're planning not only your night out but your life aren't you you're dreaming and 
And so for something like this to happen to you, where basically you you now cannot move anything, am I right, from under your neck down, it was a terrifying moment. How did you even comprehend it? How did your family even comprehend it? Because it's we all think, don't we, at those times we need to be careful, uh, be mugged or, you know, I don't know, crossing the road, all those sorts of things. But something like this, this is absolutely no one can plan for it, even to get their heads around it. What was that beginning process like? And for your family as well, I can imagine it was a shocking period of adjustment. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it all started in Portugal, really. When my parents came to see me before they even brought into the ward to see me, the surgeon took them into a room and just said to them, I'm sorry to say your son has severed his spinal cord. He's going to be a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. And, you know, my parents are just there in shock and emotion at that point. They didn't even see me. They didn't know what had happened to me. No one knew what had happened to me. I'd been flown away from friends and family. I was in a, my parents spent days trying to find out which hospital I was in. And yeah, they came to see me. And then a few days after that, I was either, there's a senior male nurse on the ward in Portugal. And he just said to me one day, oh, you'll never be able to move your arms and legs again. Luckily, I was on quite a lot of uh, drugs at that point <laughs> mm. with all the meds and everything. So my mind wasn't fully kind of there to fully take it in, but it still hit hard. But I can see why they did it and why they had to just tell you immediately. There's no dancing around the situation and it's going, this is a crap situation. This is reality. This is what it is. And as hard as it is to take, it gives you some clarity of the situation you're in. You then gives you a little bit of a direction, but still at that point, you really don't know what's going to happen. There's still a long, long journey to go through. Whenever I spoke to anyone who had a spinal cord injury, you know, they'd always ask, oh, how far along are you? What stage are you at? You know, you give you a time frame. And they go, oh, you're still early on, you're still early on. And looking back, I can see what they mean. Because it's such a journey. Yes, because it requires so many different parts along the way to really understand what's happened and accept what's happened and adjust to the real world. But yeah, it's a long journey. Um, for me, I'd say it took me a full 13 months before I'd fully accepted what had happened. It took me till the moment I returned to school. The one thing that really helped my family and I was early on, we never really held back any emotion at all. I remember when I first saw my parents and it was, yeah, highly charged at the moment. And then when I first flew back to England, the last thing my brother saw of me was this fit and healthy 17-year-old, this gym-going boy. And then they walk into this room. There's countless machines kind of just keeping me alive. I've got a tracheotomy in my throat with a ventilator and a breathing for me, feeding tube in my nose, all these drips kind of giving me liquids and all these food supplements because I wasn't allowed to eat or drink for 45 days. And yeah, they just came in and when I first saw them, it was brutal, absolutely brutal moment. But we just let it all go in that moment. We let everything out. We didn't hold back. And it, that really helped us just kickstart their journey. It was a small moment in the time scale of everything, but it was a big step. And I'm one of four brothers. It's very testosterone-filled, competitive household my, my whole life. And we never shared emotional moments. We never done things like that and to suddenly experience that together was special for us and 
allowed us to just go along this journey together and just be brothers. I knew this was going to be an emotional podcast. My goodness, I can absolutely imagine the strength actually it took you all without probably even talking about it to say this is how we're going to travel this. I'm going to come back to this story, but I would love to start though with the young Henry. You grew up in Hertfordshire with your parents, Andrew and Francesca, and you were one of four boys, as you said. Your dad was a graphic designer and your mum works in interior design. You said your four boys, I can only begin to imagine, was it it must have been a very busy household when you were growing up. It was all over the shop. Mum and dad encouraged us to do just try every sport and we did. <laughs> we took that and ran with it. We were doing football, rugby, cricket, hockey, athletics, swimming. We did a bit of gymnastics when we were young. We were just everywhere all all the time. School matches on a Saturday, club matches on a Sunday. So mum and dad were just ferrying us around the country all the time. Sometimes they have swimming before school, matches after school. It was constant, but it was great. I mean, we all, we all loved it. We loved being active. It was our thing. And when we were young in the garden, we'd always play two-on-two sports together. I mean, just any sport. We'd make up sports. We'd always find something to be competitive at. You know, obviously, as the usual spats siblings have, but, you know, we all um, still do love each other loads. And it always got resolved and we'd find something else to do together. <laughs> Amazing. And I also read that when you were a young child, you loved art, but you obviously also loved all this sport as well. When did you start to like art when you were younger? And did it always take a back seat to the sports? My older two brothers would be out in the garden mucking around and playing. And I really enjoyed being inside by myself, just making things. I love building stuff. I love just finding bits of rubbish and old bits of card and just making things and that was my competitive outlet and building stuff with Duplo and Lego and all these all these things for me I love that I was always I still am the quiet one of the family what everything I've been through has really helped kind of bring me out my shell and and talk a bit more and be more sociable and outgoing a bit more but I love just being by myself and doing my own thing and yeah I loved it for years I loved art for years but then as I got to I guess 14, 15, my rugby was starting to become more serious. It was requiring more time. Art became a bit of a side thing. Even though I continued it through GCSE and AS level, I shouldn't have done it for AS level because it just required so much time. And I wanted to spend my free time in the gym or out playing sport and doing other bits. I didn't want to be stuck in a classroom anymore. That wasn't my thing. So I hated art at that point. I really hated it. It was just this kind of annoying nuisance that was following me around for two years. <laughs> I, I understand those choices that we do make, don't we? We, we, we regret that. But you, you were saying that generally just sports, particularly rugby, was just becoming this huge feature in your life. And you had natural ability for sport as well, where you were an academy player at Saracens and followed in the footsteps of your older brother, Will. Was that what you envisaged for yourself? Were you going to become a professional rugby player? Was that the sort of life that you were thinking you were going to lead? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. I think I was swaying more towards personal training, that side of it. I loved understanding the body and how to build muscle in a certain way. And um, 
yeah, I saw what Will had to go through to become professional and the commitment and the effort it took. And I just wouldn't be able to do that. He really had to sacrifice a lot, really, really work hard to do that. And that wasn't for me. I knew that my rugby would have ended at some point. And, you know, I also would say my skills probably weren't quite good enough to make it. But, you know, without the accident, we can't really prove that now. So that's fine. <laughs> I, I was wondering if you, you the, the, the sort of, you know, I'm picturing you um, before the accident and what you're saying about rugby and, and sport and how important it was. And you, you've told us then what takes place, you know, this is the sort of interruption in your life that takes you along a different path. And when you came back to the UK, I read that you were in a a room with no natural daylight. And after weeks in this dark room, I read that you wrote, when I'd been lying on my back for weeks in a windowless room and craved sunlight so much, I thought I would wither away without it and was then taken outside. I didn't know how to process the gratitude I felt for something that I'd never even thought about before. Your words sort of stopped me in my tracks. You were filled with gratitude. And I think we are told that we should be grateful for what we have, the little things, and as the title of your book says, the little big things. And I know you've spoken before about finding these beauty in these unexpected places. And let's face it, Henry, not you know, I know many people, I have to say, that do not live in gratitude. It's something I think that if you can ever find that, you're lucky. <laughs> Tell me about this, because it must have been so many dark places that you travelled into. How do you not become a victim in those moments? I mean, yeah, before my accident, I definitely took everything I had for granted, without a shadow of a doubt. I had countless opportunities kind of presented to me. I had so many things I could have done, but I didn't do. So when I had my accident, I went five weeks without seeing any daylight. The weeks I was in Portugal, I was at windowless room there. Came back to England, windowless room there. It was yeah, like I'd never, ever seen it before in my life. It just made me feel something. It's like the first time I tasted water, when I was allowed to eat or drink for weeks and weeks and weeks. The closest thing I got to drink was on a sponge that was on the end of a stick that had been dipped in a cup of water. I was able to suck on that. And it was only a few drops of water, but again, it's like I never tasted water and it just kind of this huge wave over me of gratitude and just joy in that moment. And suddenly I was experiencing joy at the lowest kind of level possible. Suddenly it was everything that was happening was joy. Was this tasting water, seeing the sunlight, going out in the sunlight, feeling the warmth on my face, just looking out a window and seeing nature and everything like that. Suddenly you look around and go, oh, these are happy moments. These are joyful moments, but we're so consumed by other things and always told happiness and joy comes from you know big moments big changes in our lives or buying something new buying something better yes those moments can be joyful and happy no question but when you realize that joy is in those smallest most minute details of our lives suddenly realize it's everywhere it's so abundant we've just become totally numb to it that's why negative moments really hurt us and hit us hard because they're the small moments in our lives they're few and far between so when they do hit us we're not kind of ready prepared for them but when you experience 
those tiny joys. You're in a much better headspace to, you know, deal with those issues and deal with those problems when they do come and move on faster and get back to enjoying life again. And people think practice and gratitude is about, you know, wake up in the morning and going through a checklist and in your head of going, okay, today I'm grateful for this and this, you know, sunlight, daylight, whatever. But being grateful and practicing gratitude is thinking about things. And when you feel gratitude towards them, they make you feel happy. Those things you should be grateful for. And that can change every day. That can be a different thing. It doesn't matter. But it shouldn't just be a checklist because that's just a pointless exercise. If it makes you feel good and happy, fantastic. And doing that every day. And for me, I did that for years, every morning, just in my head. Before I'd have my carer come in and get me ready, I'd go through these things in my head. And it just set me off on such a good start of the day. And it just becomes second nature. And eventually you just don't think about them. You just see them and they make you feel good. And you experience them in a way that you never thought possible. <sighs> just going to try and keep it all together during this podcast because I can't... Um, they're such powerful words and I think it can take a lifetime for... Well, not a lifetime and then they leave this planet not still knowing what you've just spoken about. And some people will never get there. And I remember speaking to Mo Gordit on this podcast and he said that happiness is a choice and it's not given and it's entirely your own responsibility to understand what that is. I'm going back to your story because in the weeks and months that followed your family rallying around you, you've got your four brothers, you are opening up, your hearts are open and your mum was particularly determined that you could thrive. And then there was this turning point when you caught sight of a reflection of yourself and everything unravelled and you hit rock bottom. Tell me what happened next, because this is where you really begin to take all that physical strength you had before your accident, I suppose, and move it into your mind, into mental strength. What was that moment like and what happened? That day, yeah, it was up there with one of the most brutal days I'd experienced along the journey. I'd gone two months without seeing my own reflection. So when I was put into that wheelchair for the first time, it, I mean, it was amazing. It was, I was enjoying around the hospital, seeing all the places that my family and friends had spoken about. I was able to actually see them in real life rather than trying to picture them in my head. It was still late summer, so we sat outside for a bit. But to go through the main entrance of the hospital, which was the two big glass doors, and I saw myself. And everything just froze. I'd lost nearly pretty much four stone. I was just thin, my clothes are hanging off me. I had this big headrest on my wheelchair because I couldn't even hold my own head up at that point. I had the tube in my throat tracking out to me, breathing for me. I had these big armrests so I couldn't balance. And the moment I got back to my room, I just asked my mum to pull the curtain around my bed and I just broke, totally broke. And I just, that all day, just crying, crying, going, why me? Why me? Why has this happened? Because until that point in my back of my head was this, I guess the seed of denial that I'm going to get up and walk out of the hospital. You know, I'd been in bed for eight weeks. I didn't know any different. And suddenly the rest of my life had been shown to me in that reflection, in that moment. And there I was crying in that room, just wanting to be able to hug my mum. And I couldn't even do that. And I was just crying and everything was just spiralling. And it was Horrible. My brothers came to see me in the afternoon and I was just crying. My dad came to see me after work and I cried. And he was the last one to leave in the evening. And when he left, I was still gone. And I was on some pretty heavy sleeping tablets that moment. And I remember just lying in my bed that night and 
they wouldn't send me off to sleep. My emotions are just all over the shop. And by I don't know, three, four in the morning, I think I just let everything out, let everything that I was holding in that I didn't realize at the time just go. And I was just staring up at the ceiling and I just thought to myself, there's no point being sad or angry. I've got no one to blame for what's happened to me. I'm, I'm just going to get on with it. So I completely changed my mindset. I defined my whole pre-accident life by my physicality, by being in the gym, by my sport. And suddenly I had to let that all go. That wasn't me anymore. I didn't deal with stuff mentally very well at all before my accident. I had no mental strength. And I had to look at my life differently. I had to focus on things very differently. I had to focus on everything I could do, really drill into my head all these things and every day focus on the smallest bits of progress that I could possibly find, be in those moments each day and enjoy the rest when I could, enjoy the fun when I could, my family. But I was going to work hard in that moment. Every time I had to work hard, I was going to work hard and work harder than I ever worked in the gym before my accident and I ever worked on rugby pitch and I had ever, ever worked physically before. I was still, I was going to do more than, more than anyone told me I could do, more than what I thought I could do and just push myself and see what happens. Were you surprised by the, oh, I'm trying to keep it together, Henry, you're killing me off here. Were you surprised by the power of your own mental resilience? Because I, I spoke to, I'm sure you know her, Sophie Morgan, on this podcast, and she talked about how in those very early days after her car crash, she was paralysed by fear as much as she was her physical body by the creation of an attitude and environment around. She manifested what was going to happen around her. She created it. She couldn't physically do it, but she created it. And she was blown away with how far she could go, as you said, further than she could ever have done before the accident. Have you been surprised? Do you still surprise yourself? No, I think those early days probably when I I just had to find something I'd just I'd, I'd never thought of before in, in my head or I'd, I'd ever experienced before. I'd sat down with the doctors and the physio and said to them, okay, what do I need to do to be able to get out of hospital? Because at that point, they told me I was going to be in hospital for 18 months. My goodness. And I said to them, okay, so what do I need to be able to leave? And they said, you need to be able to get to the rehab board. So, okay, what do I need to get to the rehab board? I said, ideally, you need to be breathing independently. Okay, so then I turned to my physio and I said, okay, what do I need to do to be able to breathe independently? we worked back from what was an 18-month target to five minutes the following day to five minutes breathing off the ventilator at the end of the chest exercises. And the next day was 10, then 15, 20, half hour, 45 minutes, hour, two, three, and just built from there each time. And I wasn't thinking about leaving the hospital at that point or getting home. My focus was just on those moments and being those moments and just challenge myself physically, mentally in those moments. And then celebrate that progress every day with my friends, with my family. Five, ten minutes a day is nothing. It's a blink of an eye. We can, you know, day-to-day lives don't do anything at those moments, but suddenly that was everything for me. That was all my physical energy. That was all my mental energy in those moments. Because I knew afterwards I'd be able to rest. I'd be able to chill with my friends and do things. And that's what I did. And suddenly I got rid of ventilator and tracheostomy and faster time they'd ever seen. And I was home in six months. You know, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. And it's the same way I still live my life now. I'm not thinking that far ahead. I just want to plan, maybe start of the week, I'll plan my week, work out what I'm going to do, 
and then just take it day by day. And when I'm painting, I'm going to enjoy painting. Whenever I'm reading, I'm going to enjoy reading. I'm not going to be thinking about anything else and just enjoy those moments along the way. And I think that's the thing that surprised me most is just how happy I can actually be. Firstly, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today listening to this podcast. And I know that your life is incredibly busy and you're juggling many things, let alone throwing in Christmas. Like so many, I seem to be designated Mrs Christmas again in the household, organising festive cheer, the gifts, the food, the magic, but without the gold star or any of the praise that Father Christmas gets, of course, Well, first of all, I'm going to give you a gold star right now. A picture me pinning it onto your chest. Secondly, I'm positive you would love to enjoy Christmas shopping again. So I'm going to put the joy back into that as well. I've curated the best creative small businesses from across the UK, all under one roof. You'll find unique and thoughtful ideas for the pizza lovers, the kitchen discoers, the wild swimmers, the tricky teenagers, even the dad who has everything. Why are men so hard to buy for? I've curated the best in Christmas decorations, tablescapes and made the ultimate gift wrapping department. I've even taken care of the magic, those tiny touches that make your heart sing. In fact, you might well even find that you would like to be gifted yourself this Christmas because I bet it's not the first time you've been tasked with choosing your own gifts. So sit back, Mrs Christmas, and prepare to get excited. The home of small business at holly.co has all the brilliant ideas that you'll need. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. I think that what the blessing is that you're giving us is that opportunity to understand when it all boils down, we are able to make ourselves happy. If we can live in the mindset that you're talking about, that's what you're experiencing it was with that newfound confidence within yourself, I suppose, and in your in your mind, the fact that you were prepared to fail that led you back to your love of art. And I'd love to talk to you about that because you initially started drawing using a stylus on your iPad and then you taught yourself to paint holding a brush in your mouth. Now, the last time we talked about art, you were like, God, mistake it to make her. I should never have had that as an AS level. Now, I think it's different. Tell me about that journey, about getting a paintbrush in that mouth and, and going for it. It just happened purely by chance. I was stuck in bed with a sore on my back, consequent spinal cord injuries with lack of blood flow, sitting in a chair for a long time. All these things, you get pressure sores. And I mean, I just did over one winter and it was in January. I was in bed and I'd have to lay on one side of my body, once on the other. And all these things, and eventually I was able to sit up in bed. And I control an iPad the same way I paint with a stylus taped into a mouse stick. And I just found a really basic drawing app that I could use, and everything was just very linear and incredibly basic. But I just loved it. It was fun. It was a bit of you know freedom and independence for me when I was stuck in bed. There's only so much daytime TV that one can watch without you know really going insane. So, so I, I, I mean, yeah, I loved it. So when I was able to get out of bed, I started drawing. Using actual pencils, and then eventually I moved on to painting. And 
suddenly I was experiencing that same joy I had when I was that young boy, when I was just making stuff with my hands and playing inside my Duplo and Lego and bits, scrap bits of card and all those things. I was taken back to that joy. I wasn't having the those other pressures of sport or anything else. It was just me and the brush and the paint and in my own little world doing my own thing. And yeah, I loved it. And without Max, then I wouldn't have been able to experience that again. I wouldn't have been taken back around to that same joy that I had when I was that little boy. And whenever I tell it to people, I always say, I, you know, adversity's given me a gift. It's allowed me to experience that. It's allowed me to do that again. And without Max, then I wouldn't have been able to do that. Well, I'm so happy that you found art again. And the community you're talking to, you know, have creative minds. And so they know the transformation that can happen when you allow that creativity. And your paintings are stunning. I follow you. I love following you. Uh, mostly of animals. You know, my husband's like, if you bring back one more piece of animal art into this house, Holly, it's like a complete painting animal zoo in our home and your vivid colours. And I saw some videos of you painting on Instagram. I'm just in awe. As I said, creativity, I think, can be a great companion, an amazing companion that you just travel with through life. Has this really given you that sense of freedom that you'd been longing for? Is it your place that you can travel, but in a different way? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really been longing for it. I'm, it also, when it started, it coincided with when I just started doing my public speaking as well, which is like so far out of my comfort zone, I can't tell you. So having that balance in my life where I'm out talking in front of people and sharing my story and then being at my easel, feeling good, feeling comfortable there in my own world and playing with colours and doing all these things and not need any help at the moment. It's just me, the brush and easel and whatever audio book I'm listening to at the time. And it's fantastic. And I love that. And I love that contrast that is happening in my life. And, you know, people always say, oh, you always need to push yourself out of your comfort zone. You need to keep challenging. You need to keep doing this and this and no, yeah, it's good every now and then. It's great to challenge ourselves every now and then and experience something different. But comfort zones are great because they're comfortable. <laughs> you know, they're places we can go back to and not have to worry about things and not feel the pressures of the outside world. It's it's just whatever is makes you happy in that moment. And yeah, I love it. Then I have to do things like this where I'm talking and sharing my story, which is trying to do this for Max and wow, this this would have been over 38 minutes ago. I just, well, you're doing amazingly and this is an incredible story and thank goodness you've agreed to tell it to me and I'm so grateful. Um, I've never, so I've done a lot of interviews, I've done this podcast for four and a half years. I have never had anybody talk to me about comfort zones are great and that's because, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with just pushing, pushing, pushing. But I have to say, I'm really going to reflect on that because as I mature in life, I'm realising that actually there is an absolute need for comfort zones, the place where you can be just who you want to be, who you are and the thing that you want to do. I, I love that, Henry. I've never, ever thought of that. And I'm really going to reflect on it. And I'm wondering... Did you apply all this philosophy and that what you're talking about now in writing your first book, The Little Big Things, which, by the way, is 
phenomenal title. A very frank memoir of your life, your accident and the road that you've been on. And it's been universally praised just of celebrating how to live well in the face of adversity. Tell me what it was like deciding to write that, again, the confidence you needed to think, right, I'm going to get this into paper. Well, I'd never thought about writing a book in my life. I was, again, never a big reader. Wasn't great with English. <laughs> How things change. Uh, <laughs> still probably not regular English, but... Do you read Do you read a lot now? I'm trying to read more. I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I'm trying to read more. Yeah. But, yeah, it was only came about because someone, my agent saw me, a video of the first talk I ever gave. And he messaged me saying, had I ever thought about writing a and I'd said no <laughs> and he said oh you should do so I said okay met him he sold it very well <laughs> and eventually yeah the publisher came on board and the book was done and out there and it's yeah it's a different experience again I mean I think the thing that we really struggle with is trying to get an entire book out of it <laughs> I'm when I say things I just tend to say things and that's kind of it but we had to really pad this out. So I had to learn to waffle well. Uh, <laughs> waffle well. I love that. <laughs> You're a good waffler, Henry. Thank you very much. I, I, I tell you, I'm getting a lot better. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the good thing about that was hearing the stories from friends and family members about a lot of the stuff that was happening that I wasn't experiencing or seeing. You know, to get a much more rounded picture and, yeah, really commit that to paper was, was a, yeah, again, just a brand new, amazing experience. And the journey that's taken me on since doing that as well has been incredible. But it all comes from that first ever talk I gave, from public speaking, from, you know, it was the one time that I really took a big step out of my comfort zone to challenge myself. And everything that's come off the back of that, obviously there was the first talk, which led to the book, which had then led to the musical. Mm. And none of that would have happened had I not just taken the opportunity to public speaking, had I not thought, okay, you know, this might not work for me, this might not happen, but at least I'm just going to give it a go. At least I'm going to experience it and do it. And if it goes wrong, I can get back to my easel. I can do what I want. I can be comfortable and happy again. But the amount that's come off that one decision is amazing. And, you know, like I said earlier, that I'm fine with failing now. You know, it's still sometimes hard to take. I'm still need to remind myself that it's okay. But before my accident, I never took on anything that if I knew there was a chance of me not succeeding at it. there's any slight doubt I had in my mind, I'd find an excuse. I'd find something, some way out of it. Whereas now it's, I'm going to take it on, do it, see what happens. If it doesn't work, that's fine. But if it does, great. Then try something new and something new and, you know, just experience life. Uh, you're an incredibly positive person, Henry, and I know it's taken a long time to get to this place. And in your words, you've learned to accept and adapt. Has it been hard to challenge the perceptions that others might have of you and your disability? I think as a nation, we're quite uneducated about the fact that nearly a fifth of our population are disabled in some way. I mean, I'm when I, I remember when I first read that stat and I was shocked by the number. Because, I mean, obviously there's a huge number of disabilities that aren't visible. But when they say lives, you just don't see disabled people. Luck, I mean, one of the great things about social media is that you are seeing mm. more and more and more. We're able to see more. And it's just people just want to go out there and just 
all disabled people want is for people to just recognize them and see them and not, you know, feel sorry for them or feel down about them or, you know, walk up to them and give them, you know, a patronizing pat on the shoulder or something like that. It's just, we just want to be out there living our lives like everyone else. We just want the same opportunities, the same chances that everyone else has. And, you know, the more we share stuff, the more we talk about these things, the, just the better it is. You know, the reason why we don't see disabled people out and about a lot is because lots of people are scared by, the, you know, the tag they have. Or they're worried about, you know, people staring at them or not accepting them out in the real world or places not being accessible. And then all these things happen, lots of disabled people stay at home and don't go out. So then able-bodied people don't think about disabled people because they're not seeing them out and mm. about. And then it's just getting a vicious circle. Yeah, round and round we go. And then it just spirals and gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, suddenly when our lives are counted for, there's, so when we're given the opportunities, when we've got the right accessibility needs in place and we've got the right care in place that allow us to get on and live our lives and contribute and work and earn and pay our taxes and pay back the money we might be getting from government for care or grants or whatever and feel like we're contributing. It's not, we don't want to be taking, we want to be part of it. We want to enjoy the world like everyone else. Did you feel that when you first sort of encountered life? What were those feelings? Because right now, obviously, you've learned to adapt, as you said, and accept. But there must have been moments where you felt people were looking at you or judging what you could or couldn't do. Or I feel like I've been very lucky in the experiences I've had. Um, out in public, you know, I read lots of stories about other disabled people and what they experience. I think because in my situation, I always need someone around me. So on a mountain about, I'm either with my mates or my brothers. And if there's a couple of steps, they can, you know, lift me up in my chair and get me up a place I need to go. Whereas lots of people don't have that or there'll be wheelchair users that uh, don't always need someone with them. So they might do you know, arm movements or something. So they'll experience it very differently to what do I have. So I, I need to read those stories. I enjoy, well, not enjoy, but it opens my eyes to, you know, just because I'm a disabled person doesn't mean I experience the same life as every other disabled person. It's I still need to read and understand their lives as much as, you know, any able-bodied person needs to understand it disabled person's life or you know should we all need to be open to understanding what everyone else is going through disabled or not it's there's lots of so many other issues that we need to still understand and better ourselves and in you know helping those people so for me it was very different and i did yeah early on i didn't think about it because my main focus in those early times was just the physio and getting home and the physio when i came home and getting back to school and experiencing school. So it wasn't, I didn't really get, probably get you know, out into the real world properly until two years after my accident. And then you start realising things and you read things and seeing all these different things. So, yeah, it took me a while to really be part of it. And then once I eventually got a social media platform, I kind of felt irresponsible of me if I didn't start doing certain things. And talking about social media platform, I actually can't, cope with this but you encountered some very dark trolling um, and it seems actually unimaginable that there can be just such utterly vile people 
um, in the world. And J.K. Rowling is one person that jumped to your defence. How do you cope with that sort of disgusting hate speech? What I do now, and you know, if I tend to, something gets to me or I'm going to get angry or something, I try and not react straight away. I try and just take a moment and then deal with it. Because otherwise it can just escalate further. So whenever those things happen, I'd, what I do, I tend to write a reply, but then save it to drafts. Then go back to it and read it again and go, oh, thank goodness I didn't send that. Delete that now. I just try not to respond or react to them because it's just, it's not going to make me feel any better. It's not going to make them feel any better. It's just going to make everything worse. It's just, and why am I going to just waste my energy and time doing that? It's, the only one I responded to was the email I got of some woman emailed me saying, oh, I should have died in that moment in the sea. I was going to ask if I can, uh, and uh, can I can I read a, a line that she put in there? Does it, or is that upsetting? Oh, no, it's fine. Yeah, just because I, I think sometimes you we talk about these things, don't we? But you don't actually know what you're actually talking about. So for anyone listening, this is the sort of vileness that we're talking about. Her name was Laura and she sent an email after he, your story appeared online. And she wrote, I can't believe how stupid you are. You deserve not to be able to use your arms and legs. In fact, you should have died for being able to throw your life away like that. I'm not stupid enough to dive in shallow water. Glad what you went through was tough. Now, you think you must have reflected on this. You know, I, I look at that and I just think, how? How do you type that? I have a firm belief, after everything I've been through, that most people in this world are good people. Most people in this world want to help each other and be there for each other. And for someone to react, do that and send that, there's definitely something going on in her own life mm-hmm. that has led her to think those things or write those things. When I first read it, I was, yeah, shocked and just incredibly taken aback by that. I did, didn't expect to wake up in the morning and first thing I read before I even had my breakfast was that. So when I eventually, you know, calmed down and taken a moment, I replied, I think I said something along the lines of, no, I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. What I've been through, I would not wish. Wouldn't want the worst, worst enemy to go through something like that. And eventually, I mean, I posted it on social media. And it was the best advertising I've ever had, to be honest. <laughs> It went everywhere. It went great. It was shared on Facebook by some huge names. Suddenly, my following went up and I was like, oh, this is great. My brothers asked me and my friends asked me if I'd planned it in some way. That's some big like marketing scheme. <laughs> but I just said, there's no way I'm clever enough for that. <laughs> Each week, I'm joined by our wonderful partners at Dell Technologies. We all know that scaling your business isn't for the faint-hearted. So Dell Technologies have launched a free resource called Dell for Startups to provide you with startup expertise from dedicated tech advisors and to support you on your journey. With a mission to help you start up and scale up, they've got support on everything from scalable technology to financing options, including exclusive discounts for members. And guess what? It's all free, no loopholes, just your own dedicated Dell Tech Advisor available to help guide you on the right tech needs as your business grows. To find out more about Dell for Startups, head to dell.com forward slash UK Startups. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Inspiration. 
14 years since your accident and you've had such a full life and you're so full of wisdom and life experience. Um, and yet, of course, you're still very young. Something I asked Sophie when I interviewed her was whether she thinks that the adversity had revealed a character rather than building a character. And I'd love to get your viewpoint on that. Yeah, I'm a very, very different person, the person I was. Lots of me is still the same. I still enjoy my own space, you know, quiet time, <laughs> doing my own thing. But before Max, I still love being with friends and family and things, but and I still am that person now, but it's just built on, on top of that. Mm. It's kind of pushed out all that negative stuff, all the negative side of me before my accident. You know, the constantly worried, always anxious young man, boy I was before, worried about everything along the way, always finding excuses not to do stuff, to just replace that and keep building on that. So yeah, it's been, yeah, definitely learning and building experience and, you know, long may it continue. You've got a beautiful way of looking at life, Henry, and you've blown me away today. Extraordinary outlook that I pray everyone listening you said you you wouldn't put this on anybody in terms of your mindset. I differ. I would say we should be thinking more like you. We're coming towards the end of this podcast and I end the interview talking about, you know, this journey that we're on is like an epic roller coaster. And we have these highs and we have these lows. And I feel like I know what you might say, but I was wondering so far what the biggest low has been in your journey. Uh, definitely that day when I first saw myself um you know I think things were plateauing at a level before that and that was the biggest drop and for it to be so sudden and so kind of in my face in that moment and that day but it was a low I needed a day in which I needed to release those tears release all that everything I'd built up and yeah, as hard as it was, it was something that has been a huge part of my journey that has added to everything that's kind of got me to this point and how I live my life and everything I do. So without that day, I might not be here doing those things that I'm doing. And so yeah, it was a low, but it's just added to to everything that I'm I am and and gonna be. And conversely, what would you say has been your greatest high on this journey? I'd say it's been three. The day I was able to actually push myself out of the hospital, physically push my chair, just using the very tops of my shoulders to kind of lift my arms and push down on the wheels. When they said I'd leave the hospital in a head-controlled electric wheelchair. And yeah, it's unconventional to use those chairs without any arm movement because you know, I shouldn't really be doing it, but I had to prove to them that, you know, I could do more than they said. And I was able to to do things they said I couldn't do and to force them to look at patients differently, not just by a page in a book, by the person and their goals and their wants and their needs. And um, then it was the day I gave my first public talk. Scariest thing in my life was public speaking. I found every opportunities to get out of it tcs english you have to give a talk as part of the course and i remember all week kind of avoiding the teacher's eye until i got to friday when i knew i was gonna to have to step up and do mine luckily the weekend before i was in a rugby match 
And I had my face completely kicked in, so I was cut and bruised. So I got to the Friday, so I feigned this delayed concussion. So I had I went to the kind of the school medical centre and was just lying in that bed, pretending I had this delayed concussion. And to make it look good, I had to skip the next two lessons after that to make it look convincing. <laughs> and that was in a front of classroom with 12, 15 people. And I couldn't even do that. I found any way to get out of it. So when I first did it, oh, the week before, I was so nervous. I worked on the script for six months. And the week before, I probably wasn't very nice to anyone around me. I was just in my own head, just short with people. But the moment I gave that first talk, the end of it, I'd felt this rush of adrenaline that I'd never felt before in my whole life. And suddenly I thought, well, you know, what else have I missed out on? What else have I not done that could have given me this feeling? And all those talks I've done have just made me so much more confident in myself and really just made me feel good. Yeah, I get nervous for every single one. Yeah, it's always... I'm always in my head, you know, trying to think of ways to get out of doing things. But I just think back to that first time and go, why? You're going to not experience that joy and that excitement again. Just do it. Have fun with it. And I do. And the moment I get started, I'm fine. I can talk. And I mean, it does help that I'm talking about myself the whole time. So, <laughs> um, And then the third one was the first night of the musical when I got to see that. To see everything I've been through that my family been through, that I've experienced with them was incredibly special. And to see, especially the family up and representing that way on stage and for the people they are and everything they've been through with me along this journey was, was special and spectacular and a night that I'll never, ever forget. I can imagine. And what was it like for your parents to be there on that evening? Was it an emotional evening? Yeah. Oh, for everyone. I mean, to everyone who goes, to be honest, is there's huge amounts of tears from everyone that watches. I'm so far removed from everything that's happened now. I've spoken about it so many times. I've written books about it. I've you know, done whatever. I was sitting there towards the end, and there's a bit towards the end. I won't get everything away. But it's a theatre of about 600 people. It's a packed house. And pretty much everyone at the theatre at that point is crying. I could just hear people around me sobbing and tears and all these and I'm sitting there with the biggest smile on my face because I'm just thinking this is so cool <laughs> like this is my this is who gets to say that their life's a West End musical and a really good West End musical but then I'm also thinking is there something wrong with me am I should I be should I be crying right now is this but the family they were kind of sitting next to me and I could see them going and everyone was just special special moment it was a really special moment. And my God, this podcast has been super special. Um, would you just reflect at this stage of the podcast? I ask people just to reflect or read or whatever they want to do about their younger self. And what would you say to your younger self? Well, part of me would just say, don't change anything because everything I did beforehand, everything, every mistake I made, every opportunity I didn't take, led to this moment which led to my accident led to all the amazing stuff that's happened in my life since so if I were to change anything I wouldn't be here I wouldn't be doing anything everything I've am now everything every all the joint happiness I have now is because of, of my accident I'm much happier 
now than I ever was before. I remember my mom asked me years ago, we had to sit down and have a conversation. She said, would I go back? If I had the opportunity to go back and knock on the holiday, would I do it? And I said, no, I'd still do it. Unless I knew everything I knew now back then, there's no way I'll change what's happened to anything. I still, I'm able to see life in a way I never thought possible. To experience things I never thought would ever happen to me. To to just be happy 99.9% of the time is is amazing. You know, I love it. I'm able to just be content doing nothing. And yeah, without my accident, none of this, none of this would have happened. I wouldn't be able to feel what I feel now. Yeah, you know, I'm weirdly lucky it did happen. (laughs) You say do nothing. I think, you know, today, obviously you do a lot and, um, what you've shared with us today, Henry, you're remarkable. You're a remarkable human being. And it's why I'm so glad I've been able to capture this story and put it into the library of the most inspirational people in this country, because you have a spirit that is so inspiring for all of us who not have not been through the adversity that you've been through, who yet can still, we can fall into the victimhood. We can still moan our behinds off, you know, about everything. And the point is, is that by you being brave enough to share all of this, by you speaking out about this mindset, for what you've been through, you've given us a gift. And for for me, I am so grateful. And for everyone that's listened, I'm so grateful. And I honestly, Henry, cannot wait to see your future. Because if this is where you've got to now, I, I can only imagine in your comfort zone, out your comfort zone, whatever it is, it's going to be tremendous. And so from all of us, Henry, thank you so much for sharing all of this today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a lovely conversation. So thanks. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm